This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Right, welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. We talked about the Leap Manifesto yesterday. Uh, and, and Monday, I guess, as well. But Rachel Notley uh, spoke Monday afternoon in the aftermath of the NDP convention. And as Jen Gerson told us the other day, the Alberta NDP fought hard to keep this leap manifesto from even coming to the floor at this convention. Uh, the NDP went the other way, uh, kind of stabbed Rachel Notley in the back and maybe slit their own throat in the process. But it was funny, Roger, I wrote a, a piece about this for the Herald yesterday. I got a, an email from Rod Marining, who's co-founder of Greenpeace and was a delegate at the convention. I, I tweeted this this morning. It says, this Calgary writer, Breckenridge, says the manifesto was a far-left document, making it impossible for the NDP to ever get elected. But 70% of the convention see it as the only way forward. The manifesto is a blueprint for the future, the only pragmatic way forward. There are no jobs and no oil industry on a dead planet. Notley is behaving like Hitler with no regard for our present children or the children of the future. The sun does not circle around Alberta. Notley plays a violin and does a political dance while the planet burns. Wow. How about that? Invoking Hitler. Notley is behaving like Hitler, says a, a, a co-founder of Greenpeace and a delegate to the NDP convention. How are we supposed to? Okay. I, I don't know. What's that rule about invoking Hitler? And you're, it's supposed to take uh, you like... Godwin's laws? Yeah, that? it's supposed to take you like five or six comments, isn't it? I mean, how deep did this guy get before that was pretty quick. he cranked it out? Any, uh, any other... Anything else to read <laughs> on that front? Well... Because <laughs> so, I'm actually baiting you. I know it's coming up, and I want to point something I- ironic out. I've been... Uh, people are hitting reply all. This guy sent this email to me, but also CC'd uh, with some group email, I guess, for, for environmental NGOs. Uh, so someone else hit reply all and said, no doubt Breckenridge receives a large stipend from big oil to spew such ecologically illiterate rubbish. Uh, someone else hit reply all that says this guy Breckenridge is also a host of a talk show on Calgary Radio. So people are constantly getting his corporate points of view with few, if any, alternative, uh, alternative voices allowed. That is how the public over many years is convinced that the corporate lies are in fact the truth. And of course... They believe it, as I did for many years. That is the ongoing power of the media. It is very effective. This guy's making me blush. Yeah, no doubt. Well, listen, it's it's uh, it's terribly ironic. And the fog that these people live in, <clears throat> excuse me, that you people live in, no, the fog that these people live in is just, it's bewildering to me at times. Because, you know, you remember the great joy that we had collectively finding out that Donald Trump had suggested people boycott Apple by tweeting it from his iPhone. But how funny that was to us. Just how how plainly silly to the point of uh, idiocy we can be at times. So here's Avi Lewis, one of the co-authors of the Leap Manifesto, sitting down for an interview with Jonathan Gatehouse. This interview will be printed in the pages and on the website of McLean's Magazine, which is owned by Rogers Media, which is a $25 billion market cap company corporation here in canada publicly traded so i mean you just you look at this that avi lewis and all of his psychophants like the people who have written to you here today rob would clearly stay away from using these giant corporations that have established an economy all of their own which we uh, understand that's obvious position on the panama papers by the way we know that these people would stay away from these gigantic corporate entities to get their message out unless of course it benefits them in some way shape or form this interview with Avi Lewis should be one line. I won't talk to you, your gigantic corporation. But it's obvious that Avi Lewis, who, by the way, became famous uh, on Canadian television, um, wants to use this you know, vehicle that Rogers Media owns uh, to get his message out. So it's only bad if it doesn't benefit him. If it benefits him, hey, it's great. Apparently. Avi Lewis, by the way, was asked about Rachel Notley. Uh, The question was, you mentioned Alberta. Rachel Notley calls the manifesto naive and tone deaf. Well, her environment minister says it's a betrayal. Is there a way to bridge that gap? What he said is interesting here. He says, I think what we're seeing is more of a reflection of Alberta politics than a schism on the left. Their gusto in attacking the manifesto. So that rhymes kind of, doesn't it? The gusto in attacking the manifesto. Can we get a hip hop beat for that? Suggests that it's practical for them to do so at this moment. But there might be a danger in carrying it too far. Here's the, here's the line that's going to make things awkward. Most of what's in the document is already NDP policy. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's one demand out of 15 that there be no new fossil fuel infrastructure. That has been a grenade. We get it. Alberta politics is brutal. It's an oil province and the government feels it needs a new pipeline. But there were lots of Albertans in the room when the Leap Manifesto was born. And there are many different economic interests in Alberta in Canada. Uh, so this is interesting. It's kind of a warning to, to Rachel Notley almost that, hey, hang on a second here, because we're not that far apart on a lot of things. A lot of people in Alberta seem to like the manifesto. And so maybe be careful about how much you, you poo-poo it. The one thing that stands out to me in this interview, um, and, and I think this is the key question that a lot of people who are not zealots in any respect in this argument, who, who, do not, who are not willing to throw themselves on a grenade for either big oil or big green, big leap, whatever you want to call it. We'll read something like this. The question is, Leap calls for a massive 20-year shift to a, co- a country entirely powered by renewable energy, wind and solar farms in remote places, vast transmission networks, major transit expansions, and green retrofits for homes and businesses. Won't that be fantastically expensive? Avi's response, oh yeah, absolutely, but you know what will cost even more money? The climate crisis. Catastrophic damage from climate-driven extreme weather is now an annual reality. The cost of not dealing with it will be much greater than if we try to preempt some of those disaster cleanups by actually investing in the shift now. Do we seize the opportunity and create great jobs and save our economy, or do we stay on the oil roller coaster tied to the petrodollar? Look, if, if Avi has a point, he needs to make it numerically. And this is one of the biggest problems that we have in this entire debate is that when, when, when pitch this idea, hey, look, we could switch from oil to green and your life will be better. There are people willing to hear that, quantify it and say, but it's going to cost $4.6 trillion because that would be a non-starter for a lot of people. I just pulled that number out of my butt, by the way. But that, that's what makes it a non-starter for people who look at it and go, you know, what? my life is pretty good now. Well, it's a false choice. He presents that as the only two options. And what's even more false about it is the notion that if we implement the LEAP manifesto, we've solved the climate crisis. He says, as long as we do one, we won't have to do the other. The reality is that if he's going to make the argument that there are costs associated with climate change, and he's going to make the argument that there are costs associated with LEAP manifesto implementation, guess what, folks? We get both. Even implementing the LEAP manifesto, even doing it twice is not going to end climate change. Now, if you want to argue that, well, it'll send a strong message to the rest of the world, we'll lead by example and everyone will follow our path. Uh, Well, there's no evidence at all that that's the case. And in fact, the rest of the world might say, holy crap, that was a disaster. And we'll be even further from real solutions. So how big is the stipend, by the way? Massive. Really? Great. What do I have to do to get a stipend? Well, I'll put you in touch with the... uh, the important stipend people. Okay. You'll uh, submit your proposal. I, I, is it, do I get to go to the Bilderberg conference? Well, you got to work your <laughs> way up to that, Roger. Are you there yet? <laughs> <laughs> All right, the news to 10 o'clock is next. When we come back, we're going to get into what Brian Jean had to say yesterday. It's King Cannon Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger. That is Rob. Uh, two Alberta boys living the Alberta dream. Forgot to say it half an hour ago. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, wow. That's right. You know, hey, there's people that uh, tune in just to make sure that we're still living the Alberta dream. I'm sure of it. Every day, <laughs> even Saturday and Sunday. We don't get to check in, but it's it's uh, just as true then, too. Uh, all right. Hang on a second here. I, I've, I've got this uh, audio uh, footage now of Brian Jean, uh, who yesterday uh, addressed the province. Are we clear where this aired? Well, no, we're not, frankly, but I guess now that we're about to air it, that's really all that matters. Yeah. I mean, listen, when the premier of Alberta, the leader of the government and the leader of this province uh, buys the television time to address the province, that's one thing. When the leader of the opposition does it, uh, not so much. Now, we, we offered Brian Jean and the Wild Rose Party the opportunity to, to use our radio program as a vehicle to get this message out. Um, we offered the premium the same. Right. And neither took us up on it, which is which is entirely understandable. Uh, and if Brian Jean happens to be the next premier of this province and he wants to spend $90,000 on a message to address Albertans, then we will happily air it at that time, too. But it's less, uh, it's less important for us to air the leader of the opposition, as it has been in past years. Indeed. Having, having said that. Well, yeah, as we mentioned at the outset, the, the premier did her speech last week and then said, OK, but we'll we'll do differently. We'll give the opposition a chance to respond. And, and Brian Jean took the opportunity. So uh, here it is. Wait a second, actually. I want to hear that. Is that? 
Uh, that sounds like the Van Halen song uh, right now. Is that what we're hearing there? Oh, no, never mind. My mistake. Here it is, Brian Jean. Good evening. My name is Brian Jean, leader of the Wild Rose Official Opposition. I'd like to thank the people of Alberta for the opportunity to speak with you tonight. I know you're worried, and I hope to outline for you this evening a vision that provides hope and restores the Alberta advantage. I'm here today because of a family tragedy. Like many other Albertans, we suffered under a healthcare system that wasn't there for our family when we needed it. It is why I'm here. I care deeply about making Alberta a better place. I come from Fort McMurray. Our story is Alberta's story. It's your story. The story of hardworking men and women who care deeply about Alberta being a province that shines brightly. But today, families, through no fault of their own, are suffering. Despite my incredible optimism for our province, the challenges ahead are significant. We can no longer simply hope for the price of oil to rebound, to get Albertans back to work, and to secure our long-term prosperity. Through a series of tax increases and increased regulations, Alberta's competitive edge on every front and across almost all industries is slipping. Around kitchen tables, families have less money in their wallets and are now worried about a $3 billion carbon tax that they cannot afford. For the first time in recent memory, more people are leaving our province than moving in. Albertans tell me they are worried our province is no longer a place that inspires our neighbours. The broader political landscape has also changed. In Ottawa, we have a government that simply does not understand the issues we face. From red tape on pipelines, to tanker bans on the West Coast, to discriminating against energy workers in an unfair EI system, and to a broken equalization system. Our federal government is saying it does not care about Alberta's interests. But do not allow hope to lose out to fear. Your official opposition will never be ashamed to fight for our oil and gas sector and all industries in Alberta. To speak plainly on the need for pipelines. To stand up for workers in manufacturing, farming, refining, the arts, and for our entrepreneurs. We believe that in so many areas, Alberta is a world leader and that we have so much to be proud of. Alberta should not apologize for the false criticisms from our opponents. We believe a strong Alberta should tell our story with confidence and with passion. It begins with getting our financial house in order. After making sacrifices and proudly earning our status as a debt-free province a decade ago, in a few short years, Albertans will face $50 billion of debt. Interest payments will soon be the largest expense in government after health, education, and social services. Credit rating agencies are taking notice. Large deficits have become the norm over the last decade, and it's just not sustainable. Over the long haul, ballooning interest payments means less money for hospitals, schools, teachers, and nurses. Taxes will be raised, not to pay for the programs we need, but to pay back the banks for the loans we take. We cannot spend our way out of a deficit. We cannot borrow our way out of debt. And we all know that simply spending more money doesn't make the system better. Raising taxes isn't the solution either. It's short-sighted and will drive money and jobs out of our economy. The fact is, no society has ever taxed its way back to prosperity. What we need is fiscal discipline. We need from the government a firm timeline to get back to balanced budgets. We need to actually hold the line on spending and look for ways to find just a few pennies of savings for every dollar spent. When you consider our neighbors in British Columbia spend 20% less on government than we do, actually reducing spending by just a few percent is a modest step towards better government. And I truly believe we can get back to balanced budgets without any cuts to the nurses and teachers that Albertans rely on. 
Only by getting our financial house in order can Alberta once again stand with confidence on its own two feet. To balance the budget, we need a strong and growing economy. In the 1990s, the price of oil was roughly the same as it is today. But instead of risking billions of tax dollars in new government ventures, our government set out a course of policies that led to one of the most prosperous decades in Alberta's history. This is the vision Wild Rose has for our province. An Alberta that cares for those unable to care for themselves, but generates prosperity and lets people enjoy the rewards of their hard work. But today, Alberta now has the highest business taxes in Western Canada. Small business owners are being strangled in red tape, and a new carbon tax along with changes to our electricity grid will not only raise your power bills, but will hurt our economy. The Wild Rose 12-point Jobs Action Plan seeks to reverse these trends by restoring the Alberta advantage, getting Albertans back to work, and providing stability for all sectors of our economy. With ideas like reducing the small business tax, stopping the carbon tax, returning massive WCB surpluses to create jobs, we can get our province back on track. Your Wild Rose team has been working hard to tackle these important issues and others, like creating an expert panel to study equalization fairness and putting forward ideas to reduce dental fees, protect frontline services in health and education, improve mental health, and keep our communities safe. I promise you, your Wild Rose opposition will work every single day to bring forward positive ideas that make our province a better place. It won't solve everything, but we will never stop listening to how you want to see Alberta reach its full potential. We will push to make sure that this government makes things better and not worse. I know the next year won't be easy for many of you, but I believe in Alberta, and most importantly, I believe in our people. Your Wild Rose Conservative opposition is here for you. And we will work every day to make Alberta the best it can be. Thank you, and may God bless Alberta. Well, there you go. That's opposition leader Brian G in his uh, address to Albertans last night. And look, I mean, in, in fairness, I, I thought Rachel Notley's speech was rather political. And, and by extension, I mean, this one clearly is too, right? I mean, uh, Rachel Notley many times spoke about slashing and burning as though that's what the opposition would do. And Brian Jean gets to, to frame in his own way what, what it is the government's doing. It's essentially an extended opening statement from a, a political leader's debate. But if we're having a debate tomorrow and you gave Brian Jean eight minutes for an opening statement, that's exactly what he would say. So that, that's what it is. It's, it's very political. Uh, yeah. And, you know, as you said, turnabout is fair play um, in that Rachel Notley speech was quite political last week. There's a few things, though, that I, I, I find interesting. Um, one, obviously, hearkening back to Ralph Klein is, uh, is a pretty safe play in this province, uh, particularly when trying to appeal to a conservative base. So he does that. He says that, uh, you know, when, when oil was roughly the same price, we made decisions that uh, sparked one of the most prosperous decades in our province's history. So good on you. Um, but the part about how the federal government does not care. And the part about um, you know unfair EI and unfair uh, um, transfer payments, uh, equalization payments, etc. That he mentions in there, that, that that seems a really out of place for me because really nothing's changed, right? Like nothing has changed since uh, this liberal government came into power from from what the former federal government what their uh, outlook on Alberta was, how they treated Alberta. It, 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 it's just odd that Brian Jean was part of that former conservative government. So he's kind of criticizing yeah. something that he was part of the establishment of. Right, that's true. Um, you know, someone said uh, you know, on the text here, dental fees, dot, 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 what? It, was, it seems as though he tried to get too much into the speech, I, I think, which was, I guess he felt, it's my opportunity to give people an overview of Everything we would do where we in government right now or some of the many priorities we have, but it did seem to be too much. I, I would say this. So I'm going to nitpick the speech. Uh, there, there was 
Like, for example, the carbon tax issue, right? The carbon tax is controversial, but the carbon tax has not been implemented yet. Whatever is happening in Alberta today has nothing to do with the carbon tax. If the government came out tomorrow and said, guess what? We're not going to implement a carbon tax. Nothing would change. No new jobs would be created. So that's a bit of a distraction here. Um, we, we don't know what the carbon tax is going to look like. We don't know what it's going to mean to the average Albertan. We don't know what it's going to mean you know, for rebates, all of that stuff. We don't know. Uh, Brian Jean and the Wild Rose, have, you know, first they came out against it. Then they said they would shelve it and uh, review it. But it's something they're going to have to face eventually. It's, okay, well, if you're not going to implement a carbon tax, are you going to implement any kind of policy that would put a price on carbon? And if not, why not? If not, what then would your emissions policy look like? Or is that to say you would have no emissions policy at all? And uh, I think others could attest to the fact that that's rather risky politically, all right. to say the least. Let's take a pause right here, and uh, we'll come back with some of your phone calls. Stan has called in. We're going to get to Stan right after this commercial break. Nine seven. Oh, Stan has just hung up. Stan. <laughs> Stan. Call back, Stan. We'll, we'll prioritize your call. 974-8255 if you would like to uh, comment on what you heard the leader of the opposition, Brian Jean, say right here on News Talk 770. All right, 974 8255. Uh, your calls, your thoughts on, uh, I guess, you know, particularly what Brian Jean had to say yesterday, but really what you're looking for from government right now. I agree with Brian Jean on the point about the deficit. I think we're needlessly uh, going into debt, huge deficits uh, for the coming years, and, and no plan to balance the budget, no plan to get out of debt. And that is a concern. And I think it's incumbent on the government to have that plan in place and, and to look for cost savings. So I, 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 get, I get that. Uh, I'm, I'm supportive of that approach. I, I, again, I don't know that that's a, a job creator per se, but I think that's, that's responsible government. I'm worried, by the way, that one of the problems that those of us uh, that say we should cut taxes, et cetera, you know, that, that go along with the Brian Jean thinking that, that, that a big part of the reason why is because it means that individually we'll get more money. Like, do, you know what I'm, do you know what I'm getting at here? Like, I, I certainly like the idea of paying less tax. But if I was trying to sell that politically, I wouldn't say I like the idea because I get to keep more of the money that I earn. I would sell that politically by saying, look, the more money that people have in their pockets, the more that they can spend on the economy. Cash flowing through Albertans into the economy, that's the actual job creator. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm off, but I just feel like often this like no, no more taxes, lower taxes thing is interpreted by people who are trying to find their way as uh, just, you know, rich people saying, I, I got mine, I should be able to keep it more, more for me. And by the way, is it so obvious that it doesn't need to be pointed out because he mentioned the, the fact that we raise corporate taxes. The, the Wild Rose also put out their 12-point job plan yesterday. One of them is to reduce the small business tax. Now, nowhere in here does it say it, and maybe I should just give them the benefit of the doubt. But does that mean they would also reduce the corporate tax rate? to what it was or reduce it even lower than it was. They, they, they don't address this. I, I don't think they would leave it at the higher rate that the NDP put it at, but um, I'm, I'm left wondering. Phil, hi, thanks for the call. Yeah, Rob, I, I need to vehemently disagree with you about the carbon tax. When our premier stood in New York City in front of energy investors and other investors, and said that she was going to put a carbon tax in place and she was going to look at the royalties and she was going to do this and this. As uh, our, our good uh, friend McLeary pointed out, 20% of the investment that those people, the capital, left the province of Alberta the next day the market opened. Who pointed That's that out? Happens when that all happened in a Kevin single McLeary. day? Kevin Ke McLeary? Kevin O'Leary. Yes. Yeah, Kevin, Kevin, I would like to see that. The 20% of capital left here's, the day after she said the, that. The day after she said that, investment left Alberta and they claimed... I would, I would need to see evidence for that. Well, hey, let's get past the evidence and look at what the response will be when somebody says, I am going to increase the cost of your business, but I'm not sure how much... Well, well, did B, so, well, okay, well, did BC's carbon tax cost jobs? I don't know, did it? I don't think it did. You're trying to tell me that when you tell a business person or an entrepreneur or an investor that you are going to increase their costs, they are not going to stop making decisions, hold off on hiring, 
pull back capital, you really believe that, then you should join the NDP. Well, no, I, I don't agree with that. And the fact that I think is going to be the consequence of raising the corporate tax, which is so what they how did. did. The carbon, how did putting a carbon, carbon tax The carbon tax, A, the carbon tax is not in place. Investment. How did it not do it? Okay, well, in BC, on, they were Phil. smart enough to make it revenue neutral. Phil, and I c- wish this government would do that. But they're not doing that. They did that by combining two taxes together and reducing the amount. Okay, That's Phil, not let's what's crystallize your here. question here. I agree. Crystallize your question. Because here's the point you're trying to make to Rob, is that by, by just whispering the fact that we're bringing the carbon tax in, that made investors skittish. That's the, that's the point you're making, right? Absolutely. Okay. And when you put but the here's, tax no, but in here's, place, here's the problem, we Phil, know though. what's going to happen. We had a carbon levy in place before, right? You know that? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. This, this is the problem, though, with with it. And and listen, I'm 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 prone to agree with you on this statement. I think that if you tell people you're going to raise taxes, they'll do interesting things to avoid having to pay the tax. I mean, Murray Edwards is the apocryphal tale of that. But the the point is, is that Kevin O'Leary came on and talked a big game. He said, "Look, the second Rachel Notley said that in New York, uh, all of this investment uh, left the province. All Rob did was ask you for the evidence of it, and you said, well, let's move past the evidence. That's not how the game is played." No, I agree. Okay. I, absolutely. That was the wrong way to put it. Right, what I'm got, trying to say to no, you no, is you've, when you've, you... You've made your point. You've, you've made your point, Phil, and, and it's true. When you when you say you're going to uh, increase the cost of doing something, typically okay. investment, right. please. Uh, my two points is that, A, it's not in place yet, and, B, we don't know how much the government's going to give back to businesses in terms of rebates. Once we know of that, businesses will have to make decisions, and it may well be that some are going to say there's still too many costs being imposed on me and something's got to give. That, that may still happen, but the point is it hasn't happened yet. I think the biggest risk is that they put the carbon tax in place and it doesn't open up new business for us. Well, And so now all of a sudden, yeah. in, instead of more business opportunities for investors in Alberta, there aren't as many. There are as many as there were before, and it just costs more to do business. Right. It's a gamble, but part of the strategy here is that if we do this, whatever the downside is that will benefit because it will open up doors for us, I guess we'll see. All right. Uh, Tony, thanks for the call. Hey, I was listening to uh, Brian Jean. Uh, one of the criticisms he had for the Notley government was the... Uh, instability for energy slash electricity prices uh which i probably agree with the uh, the notion that from month to month your electricity goes up and down like it has been mm-hmm. ever since it was deregulated by the person that brian jean praised ralph klein and yeah ralph klein may have done a lot of great things for the province but i don't know whether it was deregulation itself or the way it was done but boy businesses have been living with this yo-yo of a uh, electricity thing with the you know, surge pricing and rotating. Well, let's, let's be clear. Right yeah. now, the issue is the, the transmission costs. And if you want to look at a, a PC premier that contributed to that, I, I think it's more Ed Stelmack than, than Ralph Klein. It's not deregulation. It's the fact that the grid was overbuilt. Uh, yeah, possibly so. Uh, but as I say, it may not be de- deregulation itself, but the way it was done where they broke up transmission from generation uh, and, you know, uh, the the the... the cost that keeps floating around is actually the generation cost where, you know, a plant shuts down and suddenly you're calling on marginal producers and the price skyrockets because they're the marginal right. uh, producer. Okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah. The way it was done. Anyway, that, that's that's all, uh, you know, as, as I say, as, as all the good things Ralph Klein did. Uh, Brian Jean is, is uh, quick to praise uh, Ralph Klein for all he did and then cut cut up uh, Rachel Notley for basically, you know, something she didn't do. Well, right. what is she going to do? But what would Brian Jean do as well? And that's a question he should answer. Uh, hi, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah, two ideas here. Um, uh, the job-creating ideas that uh, John Voss came up and had the insight. John Voss, hang by on. the way, to everybody, is the uh, banana up. in uh, chorus. Well, hang, hang, hang on a second. Our boss. Yeah, let's let's. Yeah, calm, John Voss. Calm, calm. Steve, had the Steve, calm down for a second because no one knows what you're talking about here. Hold on a second. John, yeah, John bring hang in on. Taylor to Steve. Uh, hang on talk. a second. Okay, so. Uh, Steve has uh, mentioned John Voss, who is the brand and program director here at News Talk 770, not the big banana in chorus. Okay, okay. Steve, thanks. Go ahead. All right. So uh, if he had the insight of bringing in someone to discuss uh, diversifying uh, jobs and getting out of the oil or, or seeing how we can move forward job-wise, maybe he should be writing part of the speech for uh, for uh, the Wild Rose Gene uh, the second point is the carbon tax. What was the first point? 
Well, the first point is that I haven't heard anything about uh, uh, how we can move forward. We heard about all the uh, amount of money uh, we're accumulating in debt, but we is haven't that... heard. I haven't heard of how uh, we're going to be moving forward uh, uh, to get everybody working that oh. isn't working. Okay, so. I'll talk to the program director of a radio station about that then, and maybe he'll. Hmm. He was on with Dave Taylor yesterday. Who was? Uh, our boss. Our boss was on with yeah, that. he was. I thought you meant Steve. <laughs> I don't think so. All right. Well, let's okay. stop now for the news to 1030. Rob and I will try and decipher that one, and we'll be right back. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Hi, welcome back. I'm Roger. That's Rob. All right. Uh, this we're going to talk about Atahualpa for this half hour. It's a pretty frustrating story because um, you know you kind of hear the same story a couple of times. You know you hear about the same problems again and again, and then new governments try to outshout old governments, and uh, the government tries to outshout the opposition. And that's just kind of the sense that I'm getting from this particular crisis that uh, that's unfolding right now on the First Nation of Atahualpa which is a uh, northern community, northern Ontario. It is remote. Uh, and it's been in the news more than its fair share in the past couple of years um, for a number of reasons. Uh, financial problems on the reserve, um, housing crisis on the reserve, uh, as well as uh, the, this latest one, which is a suicide crisis, where we saw 11 of its residents attempt suicide in one day. Imagine that. And uh, 13 young people, by the way, were, uh, what, detained, uh, taken in for... Yeah, of concerns, which, yeah. by the way, included an eight-year-old child. Yeah, there was right? a, a so suicide pact there. That was the concern. Now, the, the other aspect of the story, the Globe and Mail reported on this today, that the, the mental health position in, in the community has been vacant for some time now, since last summer, as a matter of fact, and that's due in part to the housing situation in this community. The new worker is set to start on April 18th, though, but obviously comes in with uh, a lot to deal with. And so a lot of questions about what's going on in this community, but also the, the, the broader issue about what's happening in other communities. Yeah, absolutely, Rob. The big picture is a part of this, but we're going to start with a, a bit of a, a narrow focus, though, on just on Atahuapiscat with uh, Jorge Barrera, who is uh, a reporter with the uh, Aboriginal People's Television Network, uh, ABTN. Jorge, welcome to the program. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. So, um, I mean, you heard us uh, setting up the story. I mean, do you have, do you have anything you can add to that uh, about I exactly how acute this crisis is and what's happening in Atahuapiscat? Well, you know, the, the issue about the, the, the crisis, mental health crisis coordinator uh, position being vacant, on, on top of that, I mean, federal officials admitted yesterday that, uh, you know, mental health services in general is just very, very limited uh, for that community. Um, which is primarily handled out of the health authority in um, in Moose Factory. So there, there's just not a lot of mental health services, period, that are available even on the best of days. Right. This is a community of 1,500 people. Um, and, and again, we, we've we've talked about some of the challenges that that, that community has faced. And mm -hmm. um, is is this is is this a symptom of the, these ongoing issues? How do we quantify or, or define what is what is happening? Well, I mean, it, it, there's, 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 I guess there's several ways to, to, to slice the loaf, if you will. I mean, you know, one way is to, to look at it and sort of bring in the historical aspect of it, um, where, you know, maybe, you know, usually the way we, we you know, we think of things in, in the press, you know, something that happens, you know, six months ago is, is ancient history. But in, in many communities, what happens, um, you know, 50 years ago is yesterday. And one of those issues is obviously the Indian, Indian residential school uh, situation um, where, you know, families were, were basically pulled apart, children taken, you know, from their parents, you know, for several generations, for over 100 years. Um, and, you know, the Indian residential school was created by the Indian Act, which you know, celebrated its 140th birthday yesterday. And, and the Indian Act, you know, placed, 
you know, pretty onerous restrictions on, um, you know, status Indians and, and First Nation Reserve. There was uh, limitations on what sort of commerce they could do. There was limitations on what, what, you know, if they became lawyers, you know, they had to disenfranchise, they had to give up their status. So when you have, um, you know, these communities, especially when they're away from urban centers that, you know, generate economic activity that, that just sort of naturally spread, um, when you have, you know, these areas that have been, you know, purposely um, depressed over, you know, over 100 years, um, and also you have families that have been, you know, pulled apart, uh, you know, it takes it takes a long time for, I guess, you know, to, to make medicine, you know, to have the poison drawn out. Um, so I think, you know, Attawapiskat is a community that is suffering from, I think, what Joseph Boyd, the novelist, said in the McLean's article that was circulating today, you know, intergenerational trauma. And, I, you know, that's the root of it. And, and, and Justice Minister uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould yesterday during the emergency debate on Attawapiskat and other suicide crises that hit First Nations just, just last month in Cross Lake in Manitoba, mm-hmm. six suicides, she also said it goes back to the Indian Act, the shackles of the Indian Act, and it's time to shed those shackles. Okay, I mean, you're right. And, and I I think that that is uh, a part of the story. And the only reason I say that's only a part of the story is because there's still so much more at play, which is to say that if we all just decided to acknowledge that the Indian Act is horrible, it has to be mm-hmm. tossed out, uh, the residential schools are were, were a, a cultural genocide, and we recognized all these facts, that wouldn't make the problem go away. And so the, the issue that I have today, Jorge, mm-hmm. is that we've got this emergency debate last night in, in Parliament, and so what? Are we going to come out of this emergency debate recognizing the fact that it's not the government of Canada that can make this problem go away, that the solution lies elsewhere? Well, you know, the, 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 the issue is twofold. There is, um, there is a political solution or a political approach that, that, you know, that is part of the ultimate solution, which I think the Justice Minister raised yesterday. There's also, also the, the social aspect of it and how that necessarily can't be dealt with through more program funding, you know, spe- you know only, specifically. And you're seeing communities trying to, and, and the only way really is for communities to, to take these issues and, and grapple with them, you know, at the family level, at the, you know, the, the, the community level. Like, for example, last week, you know, youth from Attawapiskat and from, from neighboring communities went on a healing walk, um, you know, because their the community was in the midst of the suicide uh, crisis. Um, so, you know, that, that it will take time to work itself out, to, to deal with the sort of the dysfunction that, was imposed basically that, that you know broke up these families and these families are starting to you know slowly pull themselves back together um you know there is no no such thing as a as a quick fix when the problem has been made worse um over you know over over 100 years right i mean this you know this debate that we're having now is bill casey from from the, the mp from nova scotia who's now a liberal said you know when i first came into parliament 20 years ago we still had the same debate and everybody goes well what's what's the solution the thing is is that there hasn't really been any new ideas come to the fore just been you know old ideas recycled and and put with new wrapping there is definitely the community it's up to the community to, to heal itself right um but at the same time you know at the political level if we're talking about what the responsibility is the federal government, I think what we, what we saw yesterday from the justice ministers that they're actually going to try something different, and that is move, move out of the Indian Act to uh, a relationship that's based on Section 35 of the Constitution and this UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People to create a new um, political relationship. You know, and, and just to go back to what the minister said, uh, we're talking about sort of final, like sort of final, fun, finding paths to some sort of final, you know, remedy. Um, she, she mentioned the, the unfinished business of, concept of, the, of confederation. And part of this is that, you know, we, we've all had, you know, and especially in the West, I mean, the idea of how, you know, all the things that have been done to keep Quebec in as part of Canada, right? I mean, this, we have to see this issue politically if it's federal government in the, in the same light that, you know, the Federation it was composed, you know, the, the English and the French, but the, you know, the, the people that the British made treaties with to, like, secure the landmass that became Canada were never brought into that compact. You know, they were never part of 
confederation. Instead, they created the Indian Act to, like, marginalize them, right? So you have this, you know, 140-year-old age-old political problem that has never been dealt with. So if you try to, if you try to bring them into federation as a, as a legitimate political entity on par with the province and the federal government, maybe the, the distribution of resources would take the government off the hook from having to provide program funding, and then you'd actually have <laughs> revenue generated naturally. Because, I mean, Attawapaka sits 90 kilometers away from a diamond mine. Mm-hmm. But the beers, and the beers, through an agreement, they have an agreement with them, they, they give them like $2 million, you know, a year. Um, but this is a diamond mine. And, I mean, it was a scandal a couple of years ago when it, it was discovered that Ontario was like barely getting any royalty revenues from De Beers as well. So, there, you know, Ottawa literally sits on diamonds. Huh. You know, yeah. I mean, sorry, I, just, I, want to, I want to drill down a little bit, too, into, okay. like, into like the community itself. Because okay. you've just given us an amazing sort of really big picture there. But you talked about that healing walk that a bunch of kids went on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they came up with a list of things that, that would help their community heal and would help their community, you know, prevent these, these sorts of instances in the future. And they were talking about things like, and I'm not even kidding here, I'm basically reading from this list, a garden, yeah. uh, a skateboard park, a clean swimming pool, mm-hmm. uh, a video arcade, a cinema, yeah. parenting center, counseling on, uh, on the reserve. And it's like, it, it's, it's quite evident when you, when you go through their list that there hasn't been a, a tremendous amount of self-worth built into the community, that these kids don't look around their environment and go, uh, this place isn't depressing, and this place hasn't been depressed uh, by a system and a program that hasn't allowed it to flourish. Mm-hmm. I mean, it took a, 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 what turned into an international campaign by like a 15-year-old girl named Shannon Kustashin to get the community a new school, which just recently, you know, has just recently become come under construction, because their old school was like, you know, had, had toxic, you know, waste in it, and uh, was was basically un, basically unusable, and kids were learning in these these sort of drafty trailers. Um, you know, it took a 15-year-old girl to go on this incredible campaign to get the new school, and and I think in a, as a metaphor for what happens in places like Ottawa, I don't, she never got to see the new school because she was killed in a car accident, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, like, that is the metaphor where you have this youth, this, this girl rising up out of this, um, what off, often people see as despair, and then she's cut down by, you know, by a car accident. It's just, it's like the fates just aren't ever rolling, you know, the dice in their, in their favor. It, it, that, was, that was a heartbreaking you know, thing that happened in this community. I was in the community in, in 2013 when they were battling De Beers, and and this was just shortly after the whole housing uh, crisis issue had blown up. And 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 Chief Teresa Spence, the then chief, she's no longer chief, but she was um, she did her um, was only fast uh, in the middle of the I don't know more uh, movement. And there was a lot of fire in people, and they were trying to figure out what to do, and they wanted to have, get a better deal with the beers, and they wanted jobs, and they launched ice road blockades. And, and, but, you know, the beers came back with, like, a multi-million-dollar lawsuit that they slapped against them, and, and the, the band council had to, like, sort of publicly disavow them, and, and everybody sort of deserted the, the blockade except for this one woman who was dying of cancer and this uh, elder woman who was in, like, her late 60s and 70s. But they stayed, and then the community came back, and, and it went back and forth, and the OPP showed up, and there was court cases, and then it just sort of dissipated. But there was, like, this incredible fight, this incredible organiza- organization that developed sort of, you know, randomly around this one issue. Um, but there was, because the band council, you know, pushed away from them, there's, there's not, like, there wasn't sort of an experienced community activist that, that kept it going or that used that energy to, to create something new or, or, or what have you. It just sort of dissipated. And so, so the, the fight is there. It's just sometimes, you know, the, you know, um, the houses and the fight just to get a new school, it, it just sometimes overwhelms. And I mean, this, this latest suicide crisis was, triggered by the suicide of a 13-year-old girl named Sheridan Hukama, um, whose body was found outdoors by a patrolling police officer in October. Uh, Sheridan was suffering from multiple um, health issues. You know, the, 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 the sewage infrastructure in her house 
um, ended up poisoning the home. It became unlivable. It had to be condemned. There's nowhere else to put the family. They put them in a, in a, in a nursing um, a nursing station home, um, which was overcrowded. It was only two bedrooms, and there was you know more up to 15 people were, were staying in a place because they had lost their house. And this is the environment she was living in. So she had to deal with not having a house. The abandoned house ended up condemned house get, ended up getting burnt down um, by kids in the community. Um, and so this, on top of her her um, her health issues and her her grandfather who she who saw as a father figure ended up getting cancer and, and she just fell into despair and then she she committed suicide and then her friends and her cousins suddenly started feeling this guilt and then it started to spread like like a virus like i think experts say this, this does happen where it just sort of spread and that was the beginning of it and, and you know these are all things that were outside of sheridan's control right. and people did love sheridan she did have a family who loved her but she just as you know Teens, um, being a teenager is difficult enough, um, but when you're put into this, this type of context, um, you can imagine how that compounds everything. All right, stand by for a second, and we'll take a quick break and come back, continue this conversation uh, about what to do in Ottawa, uh, Ottawa Piscat, uh, to, to deal with this, this suicide crisis. And, and the question about these remote communities and whether they need to relocate, something former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien suggested today. Jorge Barrera is with APTN. We're back with more right after this. Crisis in Arawapiskat, and it's multifaceted. It was an emergency debate yesterday in, in the House of Commons. Uh, Jorge Barrera is uh, with APTN. He's on the line with us. As I mentioned before the break, Jorge, uh, former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien uh, suggesting that maybe a solution for this or other troubled remote communities is actually move. And I guess first and foremost, we'd have to figure out whether indeed the, the residents would want to move at all. I mean, how do we address that question? Or how do we come at it? Well, this this is an, an this is not a new idea. As, as I I think I mentioned earlier that the, right. you know one of the issues has been that we've been recycling these old ideas and wrapping them up new, like new. And, and you know what what has said. I mean, first we gotta we gotta look at the source. You know, and and he bragged in that same scrum with reporters in Ottawa here in Ottawa yesterday how, how he was the longest serving Indian Affairs Minister. I think he said something like he was there six years. He was also you know a Prime Minister for ten years. And he was in the, you know, he's one of the longest serving parliamentarians ever. So he's he's probably been in office long, you know, he held power uh, during, you know, most of the most of the time when all this stuff really started to deteriorate. I mean, he was in a liberal government when Indian residential schools were operating. So I think a lot of the issues that we see today are fall at his feet. Number one, I mean, when he was prime minister, we saw, I mean, it was just right after OCA, and they had a roadmap to deal with this stuff called the Royal Commission that was created because of the OCA crisis. But during the 90s and the late, the mid to late 90s, we saw some of the most violent confrontations in Canada between First Nations and the state. You know, you had Gustafsson Lake where they had 77,000 rounds of ammunition fired between the RCMP and, and warriors in BC. You had the Ipperwash. Um, you know, situation in, in Ontario. And then, uh, you know, in 2006 in Caledonia, you know, that was the result of, you know, liberal government inaction on, on uh, dealing with the Six Nations, hold them in track issue. So, I mean, he, so a lot of these issues fall, you know, at his feet. And for him to now come and, you know, float an idea that has been around, but he never proposed when he was you know, Prime Minister, uh, I thought was was curious. Also, you know, he had an Indian Affairs Minister called um, Ron Irwin, and Ron Irwin also wanted to, he as he said, be the last one to turn on the lights at Indian Affairs. So, I mean, they, you know, they wanted to to to, to have the sort of the silver bullet final, you know, solve this issue for good, and and he failed. And now he's he's he floated this sort of in an offhand way. Um, you know, a lot of the communities that we talk about that have these are also surrounded by a lot of natural resources, and but they've never ever benefited from, you know, from these resources at all because you know resource revenue is, goes to the provinces. So, you know, this talking about moving communities is sort of like why when we have all these other we haven't tried all these other things we've never really given these communities a chance and now we're we want to move them and, and then you know we already have examples of what happens uh, there's you know already there's not enough existing support for youth because a lot of these communities don't have high schools so the kids have to move to urban centers like thunder bay 
like Winnipeg. You know, there's an inquest in Thunder Bay right now about these kids who went to high school in Thunder Bay, which is a large, you know, relatively large urban center in, in, um, in northern, northern Ontario, northwestern Ontario. Um, and, and these kids died, six of them, and they're trying to figure out what happened. And then you had um, the issue in, in, in Winnipeg with, with Tina Fontaine and, and what happened to her. So, you know, the urban answer isn't the answer because, as we're seeing, there's, there's issues surrounding that as well. So I'm not sure. I just don't see the point in, in, in terms of exploring that issue when, well, we've already gone down that road. Um, and there's all these other issues that we need to look at. Is this really the most where we need to waste our time trying to figure this out. Right. You know, Jorge, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I often wonder if we're not so preoccupied with talking about this issue as one gigantic uh, entity instead Mm -hmm. of uh, of recognizing that maybe we'd get uh, a little further down the road if we just broke it up into its various parts and tried to solve things a little at a time. Yeah, and I I think one of the... Yeah, I agree in, in, in the respect that we often look at it as the Aboriginal issue. We right. never look at it as place. Like as these communities are, there's over 300 scattered across the country. It's like they're in, I have a hard time pronouncing this, archipelago of islands right. against the Sea of Canada, right? And if we looked at it as place, and we saw that you know they are united in, in the sense of the relationship with the state of Canada, but they all have their own different geographies and their own different individual histories. And if we looked at them more as place instead of as issues, maybe we get a clear idea of what it actually is going on. All right. Jorge, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate your uh, your insight into this matter. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, we'll take you we'll take you up on that again sometime. That's Jorge Barrera from uh, APTN Aboriginal People's Television Network. So we'll see. This this is the first real test that the new government has faced and and they certainly came in with with an expressed commitment to to adhere to everything in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to foster a new relationship. Uh, with Aboriginals and to to help these communities that they say had been neglected over the past decade. So here's the test for them. And and I I think everybody's looking to see how they respond. There's not going to be a quick fix, and and that's part of the problem here. But to see if indeed they're prepared to to make this a priority and and really try something new. And as Jorge alluded to, to have the, the justice minister herself as Aboriginal to talk about, you know, doing away with the Indian Act. That, maybe that's the big step that's needed here, but where, where does that get us? Yeah, I, I just think that if you've got one entity, the government, the federal government, is sitting in Ottawa and saying that we can stroke some legislation that will apply equally and evenly to a First Nation in Labrador as it does to, say, the Dollarton uh, Nation in, in, in Vancouver, like that doesn't make sense. That's kind of like saying, uh, hey, the same EI program for Calgary uh, will work for Halifax. So, I, look, we got to get into the nitty-gritty on this and realize that it's been a century of errors that we have the opportunity to fix. And, frankly, our relationships and the livelihoods of a lot of people depend on it. Well, Let's and local leadership it. matters. And, obviously, sure, the leadership absolutely. in Ottawa has, has had issues, clearly. And, and so that needs to be addressed, too. Uh, we got to stand down here for the 1130 News. When we come back, our news director, Joe McFarland, is going to come in studio with us. We're going to have a conversation about the, the benefits and the pitfalls of online comments. We're back with more right after this. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 930 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.